The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. You've entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simran Singh. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Learn to empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simran Singh. Welcome. I am excited to have Charles Eisenstein back for the second of a three-part series where we are discussing his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. He is also the author of The Ascent of Humanity and Sacred Economics. Charles Eisenstein has uh, created a, a, a wonderful body of work and is a individual that speaks and creates blogs and videos to support individuals in understanding how they can step into being sacred activators on the planet. It is in the heart of every true scientist and inventor, the spirit of wonder, excitement, and the thrill of novelty. Every institution of the old world has a counterpart in the new, the same note at another octave. We're not calling for a revolution that will eradicate the old and create the new from scratch. That kind of revolution has been tried before with the same results each time because that mentality is itself part of the old world. Sacred economics is part of a different kind of revolution entirely, a transformation and not a purge. In this revolution, the losers won't even realize that they've lost. This is from his other book, Sacred Economics, as we discuss some of the many changes that are in process of taking place as we move from the old story to the new one. Welcome back, Charles. It's great to have you back on 1111 Talk Radio. Thanks, Simran. I want to talk a little bit about the play, uh, because so many people right now, they do get into that conversation about money or, or unable to, to uh, do what they really desire to do, and, and they're, they're working, they're toiling, they're staying in jobs where it really feels like work. And you speak about how our work, uh, it should not really feel, number one, like work, and that when we engage in this uh, use of money, in this manipulation of money that we are actually turning it into work in that process. Can you expand on that concept a little bit? Well, there has to be some historical context for this. Um, If you go back far enough, I guess it really depends on what we, you know, what the word work means. Um, it's a, it's a word that has become burdened with the associations of the Industrial Revolution and, to some extent, of mass agricultural societies with hierarchies. But most of the work in the Industrial Revolution was um, pretty unpleasant work. Uh, very uh, routine, uh, degrading, dangerous. Nobody would, nobody would want to do that kind of work, you know, in an assembly line or 
uh, in a clerical pool before computers, you know. I mean, people had to add up figures all day. As that was, you know, work. Um, and even today, you know, our, our system is still very much an industrial system. The, um, uh, you know, data input jobs, you know, and, and um, so we have this idea that work is something that no one wants to do unless they are somehow compensated for it. So, oh, we have a baby here. Um, <laughs> That's perfect. The child's play is here already. <laughs> yeah. So we, um, so the, so so you know, the idea is that you don't want to work, but you have to be. So you're paid money to do it, and um, it's important to have a scarcity-based money system in this view because that is what kind of forces people to do all of these tedious, degrading, dangerous jobs that they would not otherwise do. So bye. So it keeps the system going. But do we really want a world like that? Uh, we don't need to have a system like that. And in fact, our, um, our kind of industrial base is shrinking. Fewer and fewer people really need to do that kind of work, especially uh, producing these piles of, of material objects that we don't even need that much. So we're looking at a transformation in work and in the associations of the word work, and in ultimately the idea of compensation, um, it goes along with, with a change in our view of, of human nature and human motivation. Uh, you know, what, 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 what is human motivation? What's the, the, the basic uh, operating program of a human being? In, in the old world, uh, science said that it is to maximize self-interest in one form or another. Uh, reproductive self-interest, if you're a biologist, or economic self-interest, if you're an economist. Hello? Yes, and yeah. Yeah, I, I want to really, I want to stop you right there just to point something out to the audience, uh, because I just find it so beautiful. I find it so absolutely beautiful. And that is, in, in my book, Your Journey to Enlightenment, I talk about getting out of the bondage and the servitude and the replication of society and returning ourselves to the divine child, uh, which is that place of wonder and creativity and spontaneity. And in my first book, I talk about the signs and symbols that show up that lead us along the way and the very fact that a child has shown up in this segment and, and the, the voice of that child is, is behind you as you speak about this work, it's just one of those conversations with the universe that's really illustrating mm -hmm. the, the, the place that we need to come from um, when, we, when we are engaging in the activity that fills our hearts so that we can create that more beautiful world. And so in moving from that, that place of the Industrial Revolution and, and getting into this idea that the work has to um, contribute to converting something or uh, create a relationship of of services for money or or this sort of thing. It's some people will go back and say, okay, well, I'm willing to give my gifts. I'm willing to create these things and give them. But but number one, you know, it, it costs me something to make them. It costs me something 
on my end to do it. So shouldn't I be compensated for that? And and on the other end, is my time worth something? So how do you respond to those two questions when it comes to uh, releasing the grasp of money and diving more into our work as play? Well, I mean, for one thing, you know, I'm not talking about rejecting money uh, for, uh, you know, in return for the work that you do and the things you create. Um, I think, you know, in in any culture, uh, people who were generous were the recipients of generosity as well. Gifts naturally flow in circles. You give to somebody, and they give to somebody else, and they give to somebody else, and eventually it comes back to you. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, talking about abrogating that process. Um, and and we, in our society, we tend to create this binary distinction between sale and gift. You know, so either you're working for money or you're doing it for free. But that's kind of an artificial distinction. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I mean, certainly there is a role for the free gift in the world, but usually in a, a true gift culture, there's uh, a knowledge uh, that you'll be taken care of too, and there are social structures that ensure that. Uh, and money is really just kind of the extreme end of a continuum of these, of these social structures and institutions. So, I mean, that's kind of a complicated point, but, um, you know, I'm not... And that money is just a point of exchange, and so that exchange uh, being that type of energy, it could end up being anything. It could be a time exchange. It could be uh, just an experience exchange. So are are you saying that there's other ways in which... Well, no, I'm I'm not quite saying that. I mean, like... It could be a monetary exchange. Like, like for example, when I lead a retreat, um, I usually, um, you know, unless it's at an institution um, that has their own way of doing things, but I, I, as much as possible, I allow the partip- participants to decide what the right price is. could be zero, but I'm still providing kind of a container um, that, that says this isn't Free. It's not that Charles doesn't need or want money, but how do I know what the right amount is for you? You know, if you're a person of a lot of financial wealth, maybe it's more. If you're someone, you know, if you're young and you don't have very much money and you're devoting your life to permaculture and you're not going to make much money, you know, maybe you shouldn't pay very much for this. Uh, and you know best, and you know best the feeling of value that you've received. So it's it's... You know, I still receive money, but it's not from the mentality of I'm going to withhold this from you unless you pay me enough. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. that's the attitude of charging for it. If you can't pay it, too bad, right? But there's a there's a lot of variations on this. You know, people do sliding scales, you know, things like that. Um, and and yeah, so I'm not a purist about this. In fact, I'm not even advocating it, really for anybody unless it feels like this is the right step for you, if it feels good. Like, like I started doing this when I published The Ascent of Humanity, and I was like, okay, I guess I better take it down from the web now, because I've been putting chapters up, you know, on the Internet. It's like, yeah, I guess I better take it down now because it's available in print, and, you know, I want people to pay for it. And I went to take it down. I thought, 
no, this doesn't feel right. It just didn't feel right, you know, to take it away from people when I'd spent years uh, creating it as, as, you know, I wasn't doing it for the money. I mean, if I wanted to make money, I would do some other career, you know. I mean, I had this, this gift I wanted to express. And so it just didn't feel right. And that's one of the uh, experiences that led me in this direction. Uh, I completely understand that one, Charles, because that's how I did 1111 Magazine. I've completely had it up online for free for people just to access. And what I have experienced in that process is... um, there were several years where out of pocket, I, I didn't charge anything, and then I started to find myself being drained financially from it because I wasn't even placing it out there where people could donate or gift if they wanted to. And so then I placed that out there just to try to support the sustenance of the magazine because it was serving so well. And I found a couple of different things. I found some people would come at me and say, you know, this is supposed to be a gift, so how dare you even ask? I had other people come back at me and, and based on their scarcity level, it's where they were and, and they, they would either give very little or nothing. Uh, and then I had other people that came and, because it was so valued, or not that it was so valued, because it was so valuable in their experience and they valued themselves, they were able to give more. Can you speak to that range? Because I think a lot of people that, that, that are moving into areas of their life where they want to balance out their giving uh, on, on a gift level as well as what they feel like they need to do to sustain their work, how they can take the steps to keep moving um, if they're wanting to kind of do a similar path as you have. I, I think that for me it's been a, a process of self-discovery as well. Uh, so it, when you do the ask, if there's any energy of manipulation of, for example, um, for example, saying, um, uh, look at me, I'm so good because I'm doing it by gift, and you should, therefore, give money to me. If there's any energy of that, people are going to sense it, and they're going to either give more reluctantly, or they're not going to give at all, or they're going to reflect that attitude back at you in some way. Uh, another thing, so, 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 I'm I'm now very very careful to say, I you know really trust yourself. If zero feels like the right amount, you could be wealthy and zero feels like the right amount. You know, if it feels like the right amount to you, you're clear about that. Then, then I want you to have the courage to give zero. I want you to really trust it, and and I so I need to be able to say that though to them, uh, honestly. I have to actually, if they do give zero, and I know that they're wealthy, I have to be in a place where I'm not feeling resentment, where I'm not feeling judgment, where I'm not, you know, calling them names in my head that they're stingy or that they should give more or that something like that. If there's any of... So if, if someone is wealthy and does give zero or gives very little, that gives me the opportunity to know whether those judgments are present in me because they wouldn't be incited uh, otherwise. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Because it really is, uh, all these steps that we take, 
really are the opportunity to just keep looking inside of ourselves and knowing our own healing process, which then gives us greater integrity, greater power, greater presence to be out in the world serving in a multitude of ways. Yes? Yep. Beautiful, beautiful. So in the spirit of the gift, uh, money is... is You say that money as it is today is not aligned with the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, and that Mm -hmm. neither are systems of social status, education, or dominant narratives presented in the media. Uh, These are all what are immersed in consensus reality. I want to talk a little bit about that consensus reality when we get Mm -hmm. back from this break. Throughout the book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, Charles Eisenstein relates real-life stories that show how small individual acts of courage, kindness, and self-trust can change our culture's guiding narrative of separation, which he explains has generated the present planetary crisis. He is the author of The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, and Now the More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. We'll be right back with Charles Eisenstein. You can connect with him at charleseisenstein.net. Visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you would like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to Simron at simron-singh.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simron Singh. Until today, very few of the products of our economy and technology have served the aforementioned needs. Not only are our needs for play, exploration, and wonder underfulfilled, but great anxiety and struggle accompany even the meaning of our physical needs. This contradicts economic assertion that even if no new needs have been met, technology and the division of labor allows us to meet existing needs more efficiently. A machine 
it is said, can do the work of a thousand men. A computer can coordinate the work of a thousand machines. Accordingly, futurists since the 18th century have predicted an imminent age of leisure. That age has never arrived and indeed has seemed in the last 35 years to recede even farther into the distance. Something obviously is not working. I am with my guest, Charles Eisenstein, and he is the author of Sacred Economics, The Ascent of Humanity, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. This is a three-part series that allows you to really let yourself look at the world around you and how you're operating in the world and see if there are any changes that you would like to make, if there are any places that need to be delved into in a more deep way to allow what is unlike your true self to bubble up and be defined. Charles, as we go into looking at how the world works and we were talking about money, talk about the, the same scenarios that are existing in, in healthcare, in education, in the different places where those manipulatives are being used and are the same principles then to apply as we attempt in our own lives to change those very systems. Yeah, so all of our institutions in one way or another are expressions of separation. Um, and I, I kind of use the word separation as a code word. Uh, it it contains a lot. It contains, for example, the idea that humans are separate from nature. Therefore, our well-being comes through dominating and controlling the impersonal, indifferent forces out there. Um, our well-being comes through imposing our design onto this kind of inert substrate of reality outside of ourselves that doesn't have the properties of a self. It includes also the conquest of inner nature of our biological being ascending to the realm of mind or reason or spirit even. I mean, spirituality and religion are not exempt from this um, way of thinking that I call the old story. Um, although not the ancient story. <laughs> the, the ancient story is very, very similar to the new story. Uh, the new story isn't really new, you could say. But so anyway, to answer your question, you know, you can look at, so for example, medicine. Uh, how does that embody the paradigm of goodness through control? Well, it's obvious. You know, if you're sick, you identify the bad guy, uh, a germ, and you kill the bad guy. Or you control the body levels of various uh, you know, hormones and, and, and other substances, or you cut out parts. It's all uh, very control-based. Um, or education. You know, you um, uh, basically make children do things that they don't really want to do by, uh, uh, through a system of rewards and punishments, mm. which trains them to be good workers and to spend their lives doing something they don't really want to do for the sake of an external reward uh, and fear of, of, you know, the, the consequences of getting fired and not having money. Um, agriculture, you know, there's weeds in the field, you kill the weeds. You know, there's insects, you kill the insects. Um, so, so these are all um, expressions of the same basic current. If I interject right there, Charles, you talk about in the book how, and I wonder if this related to what you're speaking of, you talk about how the use of psychological force begins in that childhood, and it's about that rejection of the parent, uh, which is probably one of our deepest fears. So when we're looking at our uh, 
government or, or our bosses or any place where there's an authority figure is, is that place of our psychology uh, and the rejection attached to it part of the reason that we stay in the systems rather than, than yeah, allowing so, ourselves to change. Right. Um, so there's, there's kind of an internalized authority and the habit of obeying external authority that are both cultivated through our parenting and educational systems. Uh, so you can look at, like, so suppose you say, I'm going to make you do something. What does that really mean? It could be that you're holding a gun to, you're holding a gun to someone's head. You know, I'm going to make them do it. Uh, or it could be some more subtle form of force. Um, you could uh, threaten them, for example. So how do you make yourself do something? Well, it is also through a kind of a force that originates, and I'm, I'm vastly oversimplifying this, okay, but, but just to kind of lay out the idea. So children are um, undomesticated when they're little, they're, they're wild, and they often want to do things that the parents don't want them to do. Well, one way to make a child behave uh, is to threaten them with the worst thing imaginable, which is not even physical pain. It's abandonment. Mm. Now, we don't, well, some parents do that. <laughs> they pretend to, you know, go away and stuff, and it terrifies the child. But, but usually we do it in a more subtle way through uh, rejection and conditional approval. So um, things like, like, you know, how could you? What's wrong with you? You should be ashamed of yourself. You know, basically they're saying, you know, mommy or daddy don't like you. We reject you. Uh, it's, it, it keys into this fear of abandonment. Whereas, you know, oh, you're so good, you know, good boy. Um, I approve of you. I accept you. That is a conditional form of approval. Uh, and, and so these get internalized as we grow up, and we do the same thing to ourselves. So you'll find people, for example, if they want to go on a diet and they cheat on their diet that day, they'll beat themselves up. You know, why did I do that? What's wrong with me? Hoping that if they beat themselves up enough, they will um, create a motivation to not do it again. Or, you know, oh, I was so good today. You know, I get to like myself today. Uh, it's, of course, counterproductive because how do you demonstrate that you like yourself? Probably with an extra helping of cake, you know. Uh, but, but so this is a pattern that we apply um, not very successfully uh, in an endless war against the self to try to make ourselves, try to make ourselves do things that we don't really want to do. Uh, and, and, and the self-control extends to every realm and, of course, gets imposed on other people, too. So you'll have, you know, government officials, you know, police, uh, immigration officials, uh, you know, um, basically uh, exercising some form of humiliation in their interactions with the public. I mean, that would be just one example. Uh, or patronizing attitudes um, on the part of government officials, you know, or teachers even. It's all, uh, it's, it's all from the same, um, ultimately, force-based paradigm of control. And it fits quite neatly into our 
um, uh, kind of classical scientific theories about how change happens in the world. Uh, Galileo and Newton, they explained it. Change happens when you exercise a force. So it's, it's, it's part of this vast mythology, I would call it, that is uh, becoming obsolete. Uh, and, and so on every level, you know, scientific level, but, but even uh, the personal level, we're, we're wanting to release this endless war, this endless struggle against ourselves. And we're recognizing that, you know, maybe my, you know, binge eating isn't this bad thing that I have to control with force. Maybe it's a symptom of an unmet need. Um, maybe I'm a beautiful person, you know? So, so yeah, it's, it's a big, a big shift that we're facing. And in, in regard to looking at the world, if, if it is feeling or looking chaotic to people, is, is trying to step in and uh, do something or manipulate something or interfere in something, is that a degree of control that is actually creating more chaos or or does the chaos itself dissolve? And, and I'm not talking about the big things because I know that we are here to be also sacred activators in, in how we approach things based on the inspiration that we feel within. But um, from the standpoint of feeling as if we have to really save it, we have to really save the world, give me your views on that. Um, well, you know, a lot of times, so again, I'm not saying that, that, you know, we should never interfere in a situation or that, or that we should never use force or even that we should never fight. I mean, there, there, there are occasions for this, um, but often our habit, which we apply whether or not it is appropriate, is to exercise some form of force. And, and yeah, like you said, Usually it just creates a bigger mess. You know, the, the, for example, chemical agriculture that says we're going to have better yields if we eliminate all of the weeds and insects. Well, you do that and you get better yields for a while, but then you get super weeds and super bugs and you have to apply even more powerful things and those kill off beneficial soil bacteria. So you have to add even, you know, more to the soil and eventually... Like, oh, you know, one bad thing after another happens, each of which must be addressed with a new technical fix until eventually you have to, to input tremendous amounts of resources even to, to maintain the same yield that you had two centuries ago. You know, so, so basically we cause problems by our control efforts of control, and then we try to solve those problems with even more control. See the same thing happening in U.S. foreign policy, where, you know, like, why are we, you know, bombing villages and wedding parties with, with, with drones? Well, you know, it's because there are those terrorists out there, uh, and we need to eliminate them. It's a form of control. Well, why are there terrorists out there? Well, it originates in other <laughs> actions, that were also forms of control. And we can, like, we can see with the, you know, the invasion of Iraq uh, and the consequences today, which are even a greater loss of control. Um, and, you know, 
eventually what happens is that someone just gets tired of it. We get exhausted. We realize the futility of the control. And we stop. We hit bottom. And then, yeah, yeah the, the chaos stops because it, it burns itself out or we hit bottom. I, I think that we are also on such a quest for meaning. To, when we see these things happening, we want to somehow make meaning of them, and, and we want to tell ourselves it's, it's so that we can be something or we can do something or or that it, it's, it's, a, it's a karma, or we, we come up with all these ideas of, of why it means something, and then there's this equal thought of, well, what if it's all meaningless? And you have a statement in here, and that's what I thought of when I read the statement, and it was the crisis of civilization and the despair over the crisis share a common source. And it's, it's that crisis, that place of, of separation where where we discover that maybe it actually means nothing, none of it means anything, and yet it means everything at the same time, and we can't find our place in it. Um, well, what I was thinking of when I wrote that um, is, okay, first, what is the source of our planetary crisis? It is our technology, the way we use it. Uh, it's our desire for endless growth. Um, it's our disrespect for nature, first and foremost. That's the origin of the crisis. And where does the disrespect from nature come from? It comes from seeing nature as an other, from seeing ourselves as separate from nature, uh, for seeing um, nature as lacking its own intelligence, its own beingness, and therefore allowing us to just impose well, first, giving us license to impose our design upon it, but also making that necessary in order to protect ourselves from these impersonal forces out there. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's goodness comes through control and through domination. Um, and because the world is just this kind of impersonal melee of forces, you know, and masses bumping around and so on. So that is the origin of the crisis. The despair comes from that same worldview, too. It says, you know, in this world of force out there, these vast impersonal forces, what power do I have to alter the situation? Very, very little. Because I'm just one little individual. Nothing I do matters that much in the vast scheme of things. That is an irrefutable truth if you accept the premise that you are just a separate individual in this vast impersonal universe of other. Nothing you do matters. So the despair comes from the same place as the problems come from. And you could even say, you know, even if you organize lots of people and create a mass movement, well, sorry, but the powers that be have more force at their disposal than your mass movement does. So when we're stuck in that world where our ability to create is limited by the predictable cause and effect, force-based cause and effect that we can operate, then, then despair is the logical conclusion. 
Our discomfort with the teaching like you don't have to do anything comes in part from our thorough indoctrination into the work ethic, which holds that without the discipline of doing, nothing gets done. If there were no grades hanging over their heads, no paycheck at the end of the week, and no internalized habit of work such devices have created, then most people wouldn't keep doing what they do. Only those who work for the love of it would continue. Only those who work gave them, whose work gave them a palpable sense of service, of contribution, or of meaning. In preparation for such a world and to prepare such a world, let us cultivate the corresponding habit in whatever way makes sense. Let us practice trusting the impulse to work, and when it is not present, let's hold each other through the panic, uncertainty, and guilt that may arise. This is from the book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible by Charles Eisenstein. He is also the author of Sacred Economics and the Ascent of Humanity. You can find out more about all of his work at charleseisenstein.net. That's E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. We'll be right back. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you would like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to Simron at simron-singh.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simron Singh. Hope has a bad name these days among certain teachers. On the one hand, it seems to suggest willful thinking that distracts us from a sober assessment of reality and fosters unrealistic expectations. Hope is the worst of all evils, for it prolongs the torments of man, Nietzsche said. Meanwhile, in the language of spirituality, hope implies a rejection of the present moment, or perhaps a taint of doubt eroding the creative power of one's intentions. But let us not be so quick to dismiss the primal elements of the human psyche. What does hope tell us? 
springing eternally, as it so often does, like a flower alongside the desolate byways of despair. We'll ask that question to Charles Eisenstein. He's the author of, the, of Sacred Economics and the Ascent of Humanity, and the book that we are currently discussing, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. You can find out more at charleseisenstein.net. Let's talk about hope, Charles. Uh, it has gotten kind of a bad rap from many people, and and then on the other hand, there, there's that the language of that spirituality. So where does hope lie in all of this, and is it something that we are clinging to uh, when there should be a different word that we should hang on to? Yeah. Um, so there is such a thing as uh, a fantasy uh, that is ungrounded from reality and a distraction from what's in front of our faces, but that's not what I'm talking about when I'm validating hope. What I'm talking about is the feeling um, of being shown or reminded of a real possibility. So you might have some kind of, even a brief experience of, could be a cooperation or it could be a deep connection with another human being. Uh, and it maybe lasts just a little bit and then you're back to normality. But that moment awoken, maybe awakes or strengthens in you the knowledge that this is how it's supposed to be, that my life could be based on that, or that even the world could be based on that. Maybe you, you witness like, uh, like um, some kind of restorative justice process, you know, or a council process where... where Intense conflicts are held by a group and resolved in a really beautiful way. And, and that experience shows you what the future could be. You know at that moment that this isn't just some kind of exception to normality, but we can have a world based on this spirit. And, and, and you know, what would the world look like if, if all conflict were held in such a process? So we're, we're getting shown a reality, and to me, hope is that feeling of recognition of a future possibility that calls to us. So I, I think that, 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 these, that these experiences are essential. Uh, without them, we would lose, at least speaking personally, I mean, maybe some people are stronger than me, but, but if I'm not shown glimpses of the possible from time to time, then my own vision, I start to disbelieve my own vision. Um, I, I need help to stay true to this vision of, of what wants to be born on earth. I need, I need to be shown it in various forms again and again and again so that I can stay aligned with it. Um, and, and that feeling, you know, I, I, I guess hope is mixed in with that. You know, it's, 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 um, it's not a distraction from what is. It's the process of aligning to what can be. And when we have that sense of hope, does that create within us the the urgency uh, to 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 be willing to stand up in those places that are oppressive and um, feeling controlling or? Where in the urgency do we not want to step into the panic of it? Because urgency could be, it also has its own line of polarity. Yeah, there's definitely a time for urgency. Um, 
when there's an emergency and you know what to do about it or something that, that needs immediate action and you know what action to take. Uh, there's also a time when urgency can be counterproductive. When, for example, the actions that you normally take are ineffective or counterproductive. And urgency says, do something, do something. But the thing that you do doesn't help the situation. In that case, urgency can, can be a trap. Uh, and what we really need to do is to pause um, and reset uh, and um, await the uprising of some new kind of action, which may take time. So, so yeah, urgency can, again, it's not like something that has no place in this universe, but it can also be um, counterproductive. And I think that it's especially counterproductive when you just have no idea what to do. Uh, everything that you normally do has failed, and, and you're stuck in a pattern of action that is doing no good, which is very much the situation our society is in, in the political realm, for example. You know, and in stuck, that bridge you know. between the old world and the new world, in that place of urgency, how, how do we recognize, or is there a question that we ask ourselves, an inquiry that we go into, that, that helps us to stop doing things the way that we've always done so that we can step into a new way of doing things? Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of practices that, that, you know, various meditation practices, I guess, or retreats, you know, being off in nature, um, and people who teach these practices. I, I can't say I recommend one over the other. Um, I think, though, the, the most important thing is to understand that, I guess, how can I put it, um, I see myself as uh, contributing to a happening or being the agent of a doing rather than the doer myself or even the creator myself. Um, so that means sometimes um, waiting to be clear on what the right doing is. And if I'm not clear on it, than not to do, uh, and 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 to recognize that um, kind of authentic urge to do something uh, requires in me a lot of deprogramming because I have habits of response that say you should do such and such in in such and such a situation that are no longer reliable guides. Um, so, so just to trust the kind of natural grace of a situation and, and to trust that it doesn't always have to be hard. It doesn't always have to be a struggle, which isn't to say not take action, but to, to trust that, yeah, I will take action when the moment for action has arisen. And I will distinguish when, I mean, sometimes the moment for action has arisen and I don't take action because I'm afraid of something or it's unfamiliar, you know, or it's a new step. It's new territory. So there's still a role for, for bridge, you know, here, um, and initiative and things like that. Um, and that really sounds like staying in that place that you mentioned earlier, that, that urgency can also be that urge 
asking you to stay in the pause, as you phrased it, to really just be in that pause and allow yourself to know whether that's stillness or whether that's action or whether that's just feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very Taoist way of looking at it, you know, uh, drawing on the concept of wu-wei in Taoism, which is sometimes translated as non-action, but it really means more, I, I like Thomas Cleary's translation of it, non-contrivance. You know, it's an absence of kind of forced, contrived, unnatural action. Uh, but it's um, action aligned with the with the Tao, you know, with the with the flow of life, with the uh, uh, emergence of that which wants to be born, um, and it can be very, very active. But it's action when it's time for action, and stillness when it's time for stillness, and even to accept that that there is a time for stillness is a little bit counter, counterintuitive for us, you know, because we think, well, you've got to be doing something. If you're not doing something, then you're not getting anything done. You know, you're not, you're not contributing something measurable to an outcome. And we're often in a lot of kind of these, I don't know, like coaching, business consulting, kind of like coaching kind of things, you know, you, you're, you're, you're meant to uh, start off with defining the measurable outcomes that you want to produce and then, you know, what you have to do to get there. And, and like, that's fine if you, if your knowledge of how to get from point A to point B is sufficient. But if it's not sufficient, if you just don't know what to do, then sometimes it's better not to do anything until you do know. Yeah, because we have become a scurrying society. We've become one that just runs and moves and at an ever-increasing pace, especially with technology as, as where it is. And then that also feeds into those concepts of achievement and success and in the terms, in the way that success is identified for a lot of people right now. And so that pause allows us to not fall into that same old uh, hamster-on-the-wheel yeah. syndrome. And it's also part of, like, regaining our sovereignty over time and, therefore, over our lives. We're conditioned by, you know, um, the clock, uh, which makes time scarce. Um, It makes time finite because you're measuring it, and it becomes only a certain number of minutes and seconds and hours. And 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 that's kind of that false scarcity that you talk about in the book. You you speak about it in many different ways, but as you were speaking about time, is is that one of those places of false scarcity that we really have it, but we use it up as if we don't? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The scarcity of time is is part of our worldview that that identifies the self with this kind of limited biographical being, uh, which is not, uh, you know, like um, primitive, quote-unquote, primitive cultures, um, ancient cultures, they didn't see time as so limited. They um, enjoyed huge amounts of leisure. They weren't under this constant time pressure. Can I afford to be doing this? Can I afford the time? There, I, I read a, a story about a guy who visited um, uh, an Inuit shaman, you know, in his hut um, in northern Alaska, and he went and visited him, and the guy was just sitting there in the hut, not doing anything. And the anthropologist said, what are you doing? And the shaman said, nothing. He said, well, what do you mean? You mean you're meditating? He's like, nope. Well, what are you doing? He said, nothing. 
And it was just so hard for him to, to, to wrap his mind around the idea of just sitting and doing nothing and being okay with that. Because in our society, there's always something you could be doing. You know, you're always falling behind on something. You could be paying the bills. You know, you could be preparing yourself for your next project. You know, you could be working a little harder. You could, there's always something to be done, which is a real paradox. And, in, in, you know, given that we have so many labor-saving devices, why should we be more hurried and more busy than ever? But, but you know, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a foreign state of mind, but it's also a very deep form of wealth to have a wealth of time, to not be in a hurry. I mean, it's a, it's a basic kind of abundance that we lack and that we can reclaim, um, but it takes a lot of deprogramming. My guest today has been Charles Eisenstein, and he is the author of Sacred Economics, The Ascent of Humanity, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. He is uh, able to be contacted at charleseisenstein.com. Net, and I urge you to look up his blogs, his books, his videos, and any place that you might see him or invite him to speak if you're wanting to step into some more expanded and newer paradigms of how you truly can create that more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible. Until next time, in the third part of this three-part series, I'm Simran Singh, in love, of love, with love, and as love. We'll be well. Thank you for stepping into the doorway of conscious choice with 1111 Talk Radio. Please join host Simran Singh again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for another enlightening edition here on the 7th Wave Network. Remember, shift happens. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 